morning, Franklin Community Church. It's good to see you all this morning. I know we're missing quite a few people because of spring break and everything, but it's such such a joy and privilege and honor to be uh, sharing with you all this morning. Um, for those of you who, who don't know me, who, who we haven't met, my name is Nathan Beasley, and I'm the associate pastor here, and uh, very excited to share with you uh, this morning some stuff that the Lord's been putting on my heart. So um, if you would. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to be looking at the triumphant entry of Jesus, which is very apropos given that it's Palm Sunday today, uh, of course, the week leading up to Jesus's passion, the crucifixion, and of course, Easter Sunday next week. Um, I think that's the, I think maybe there's another PowerPoint. Named, my bad, naming issues. Um, in 2016, the University of Liverpool conducted a study in which they asked participants to choose between images of bicycles to see which one had the correct structure. Now we're all like, okay, if I were asked to participate in this, in this study, I, I could definitely nail which bike has the correct structure. Um, they were trying to study this psychological principle called the illusion of explanatory depth. Now, what this idea is, is that we use these different objects all the time throughout our day-to-day -day, uh, life. And oftentimes, we know what they are, and we think we know, you know how they work, but we really don't. Um, the illusion of explanatory depth. For example, zipper, a zipper. We all, well, most of us probably use zippers. Do you know what it is? Do you know how it works? But could you explain how it works? I know I sure couldn't. Um, how about a ballpoint pen, right? We use these things every day, but do we really know how they work? Maybe, maybe you do. Um, what they found in this study was that 40% of the participants couldn't properly identify the structure of a bicycle. That's that's incredible, isn't it? 40, or over 40% couldn't, couldn't find the proper structure of a bicycle. You see, there's a divide between what we think we know and what we actually know. This explains why some students think they may know uh, an exam that they're going to take and what's going to be on it and they're going to do just fine. But in reality, they take the exam and they do a lot more poorly than they thought they were going to do. Um, I know this is true of me, my freshman year of college. I'm not too proud of this. Uh, Mom, close your ears. Uh, my first calculus exam, I had calculus with Dr. Boardman. Some of you may know him. And uh, everything made sense in the class. Like I was sitting there watching, taking notes, all this stuff. I didn't really do the homework because it was optional. But man, me and a lot of my friends, not to, I'm not going to name drop or anything, I think that exam, gosh, I, I think it was somewhere in the 30 to 40%. I mean, it was bad. It was so bad. But thankfully, it was my freshman year, and thankfully, it was a wake-up call, and I ended up passing the class because I talked with the professor, and we got it figured out and all that stuff. Not proud of it, but I think it gets to the, the root of this, this idea. Um, there it is. Thank you. Uh, there's this illusion of explanatory depth. We're going to be in Luke 19, and throughout the Gospels, the, the authors are trying to give us a proper perspective of 
who the Messiah is and what the kingdom of God is like. And I think that this, this story here will help us build out so that we don't just know, you know certain things about the kingdom of God, but that we can actually build out an understanding of, of who the king Jesus is and what his kingdom really, really looks like. Um, and, and this idea of the kingdom of God is, is throughout all of scripture, um, especially in the New Testament. I mean, it's the first words of Jesus's ministry in, in all four gospels in Matthew 4, 17 and Luke 1, 14 and Luke 4, verse 43. And in John 3, the first words of Jesus's ministry, repent. Why? For the, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is near. Um, it, it's a major theme. Look at most of, I was looking at this, not all of them, but most of most of the parables, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of light is like, and they're all, and there's nuanced understandings, but the kingdom, Jesus's kingdom is a very huge theme throughout the New Testament. So today, I hope and pray that Luke 19 sheds us a little bit of light on what the kingdom of heaven is like. And I'm not saying this because I think we've gotten it wrong. I feel very humbled to be here before you. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking and praying through this and I'm like, man, Lord, what, what can I teach when all of my teachers are here in the church? I grew up here and have been formed by so many of you. And uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying this like I've got it right. You've got it wrong. That's not, don't, don't misunderstand this. But I know for me, Oftentimes, I need scripture to help realign my heart. It's like, you know, I, I play the guitar, and before I play, I've got to retune my guitar every time. And um, I'm thankful that the scripture can do that. It can reorient our heart to give us a proper understanding of what the kingdom of God is like and who King Jesus is and what his reign really looks like. There's the pictures of the bikes, by the way, but I'll, I'll, I'll move past it. Um, So it's my prayer that this morning uh, the Holy Spirit would use this scripture to reorient our hearts, to help us build out an image of what the kingdom of God is like. So let's, let's begin with a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I feel so humbled to together look at your word. God, thank you that you have preserved your word for us. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that your, your kingdom come uh, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven today. Um, Lord, thank you that you reign. I pray that you help us understand this morning what your reigning looks like. God, speak to us now through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you got your Bibles open, like I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Let's read through this together. It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. After he approached Bethpage in Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent went ahead and found it just as Jesus had told them. 
Now, as they were untying it, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Or maybe some of your versions say the time of your visitation. Both ideas are getting the same idea across that God has visited us and first century Israel, the time of your visitation by God, and, and yet you didn't recognize that it was God. This is breaking the heart of Jesus. So let's, let's start at the beginning and kind of go verse by verse through this. Um, it says, as Jesus had said this, what, what did he say? Um, he was just in Jericho talking to Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 18, or Luke chapter 18 and 19 preceding this. And then he's going up to Jerusalem. This is about a 10-mile distance, so I don't know how fast you can walk 10 miles, a couple hours. Um, and, and as they get to this place, Bethpage and Bethany in the Mount of Olives, um, they're about 30 minutes outside of the city. So Jesus tells his disciples, go and get the colt who's going to be tied there and, and bring it to me. Why does he say this? Well, at first glance, maybe you're thinking, well, Jesus is just tired. He's just exhausted. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here uh, for a couple reasons. There's some contextual clues. We'll get into that. But the other reason, I just feel like it would be mean if after walking, you're exhausted and you send your disciples to walk 30 more minutes there and 30 more minutes back just so that you can ride into the city. <clears throat> um, so I, I don't think it's just that he's exhausted. I don't know if there's, if there's something going on that he talked with them about uh, in their conversation on the way from Jericho to Jerusalem or what, but we understand that uh, Jesus is getting ready to begin a coronation process, and he's initiating. Uh, this isn't the first time when, when the people have wanted to make Jesus king of the Jews. We see that in, in uh, John chapter 6. After Jesus feeds 5,000, the people want to take him and make him their king. But he says, no, 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 my time hasn't come yet. But here it's really interesting because Jesus is initiating, and they get it. They understand what's going on. Why? What are the contextual clues? Well, first of all, he says, uh, go and, and find the colt that no one has ever ridden. What's significant about a colt that's never been ridden? Well, in the Old Testament, we see all these kings and their animals that they ride are only to be ridden by the king. If anybody else rides it, it's desecrated and they need to get a new animal for the king. Secondly, 
why else, why else do they recognize that, that this is what's going on in the coronation process? Because after they bring it to Jesus, they throw their cloaks on it. And they throw their cloaks on the ground. What's going on here? Well, in, in 2 Kings chapter 9, we see uh, as Jehu, one of the kings of the Israelites, is being crowned, they're doing the same thing. It says they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So this is symbolic that they're crowning Jesus, king of the Jews. This, this account is in the other four Gospels as well. But we, we know that Luke is sometimes a little bit more attentive to detail than some of the other guys. Something that's different in Luke than the other accounts is, is that it says uh, they put Jesus on it. In the other accounts, Jesus gets on the donkey. But here, they put Jesus on it. They understand that they are crowning Jesus as king, and Jesus is allowing it. What else? How do we know they know that this is what's going on? Look at what they're saying, right? The whole crowd of disciples is praising God. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The other accounts say Hosanna, right? Hosanna, the typical Palm Sunday thing to say. Hosanna, what does that mean? It's, it means save us, but it's like an ex exclamation. It's like, please save us. Please save us. Save us from who? Well, during this time, the Jews were under the, the oppression and the authority of the, of, the, of the Romans. And the Jews are expecting this Messiah to come and alleviate the pressure from the Roman government. So everything in this story is revealing to us that, that the people recognize Jesus as king, as a king who will bring peace. The Pharisees, I love this. They're like, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He's like, nah. I can't. I, I, look, in a deeper sense than they even realize, their words are true. The king had come and he will be glorified. And the people get this. The people understand it. That's my first point. This is huge. The people, the, the disciples understand what's going on. They're crowning Jesus to be king. <clears throat> in my, in my uh, discussions with Pastor Dan leading up to this, I was like, isn't it incredible? The disciples get it. For, for four days? I mean, we know the, spoiler alert if you don't know, but we know the end of the story, and they're going to kill him in four days or five days, Sunday through Thursday or Friday. I don't remember. Um, Friday. Isn't it incredible? The disciples, they get it, seemingly. And Pastor Dan, uh, he said, well, did they really? I mean, do they really understand the depth of what's going on if they're, getting ready to, if they're getting ready to kill him? And as I was studying, I realized that this principle is true. Um, the first thing that came to my mind as I was reading through this uh, that, that made me say, okay, maybe they don't fully understand what's going on. The first thing is that um, in John chapter 12, John actually concedes this. He says, at first the disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So why? I mean, it seems like they get it. Why, why don't they understand it? Well, there are a couple things here, like I said, that kind of raise an eyebrow. The first thing, Jesus is on a donkey. <laughs> what kind of king rides a donkey? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think about a king, I think about a horse. Man, those things are strong. 
powerful. I went down to the Kentucky Derby a couple years ago to, to help volunteer with an organization, and I got to go walk by the, the track. It was awesome. I didn't realize that all the expensive tickets were like way up high, so I like walked up straight up to the track, was there kind of by myself. These things are strong. I can get why kings would use them in battle. They symbolize power and strength and authority. And then on the, on the same side, in the Dominican, uh, where Abby and I lived for a year, we, there was this guy, this old guy who I didn't ever talk with him or meet him. And we were in the city, so it was a little bit out of place because there were cars and everything. But this guy was just always walking his, like riding his donkey. And it's not as impressive of a, of a creature. Um, the, the donkey here, we see, we see other kings riding donkeys in the Old Testament, also back in Kings but it symbolizes peace. And this is interesting because what the Jews want, what the disciples want is somebody who's going to conquer the Romans. Matthew gets it. Matthew says this fulfills the, the, the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 who says, Shout and greatly rejoice, daughter Jerusalem. See your king. He's coming to you. Righteous and victorious. Low, righteous and victorious. Lowly and riding on a donkey. In Kings, we see that uh, this this donkey symbolizes this donkey symbolizes peace. So not only is it a donkey, but even less impressive, it's a borrowed donkey. I mean, if if y'all have read the Old Testament, you know that these kings are kind of loaded. Who would have to? What kind of king would have to borrow an animal? Don't you think that this is kind of confusing? Okay, we got to get a donkey. We got to get a borrowed donkey. Lowly and humble. Riding on a donkey. The third piece of why I don't think they fully understand is Jesus' response at the end of this. Luke is the one that records this. The other Gospels don't record it. Look at Jesus' response. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Man. If you, only you, even you had only understand what on this day what would bring you peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Jesus gets that they're missing it. They're praising him, but they're missing it. They're praising him, but they're missing it. Jesus is saddened by this. Now, why is, why is this important? Because here we see the disciples, the whole crowd of disciples. I don't think this is just the 12, but Jesus had lots of people following him from Jerusalem. And it says in 37, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God, yada, yada, yada. This, the disciples here, they're worshiping Jesus, but they're missing it. They've even invited Jesus to be king but they're missing it. They're praising Jesus. They're missing it. They're even joyful and passionate about it, and yet they're missing it. And it's breaking the heart of God in the flesh. My, my second point here is that the disciples do not understand. 
See, they get it and they don't get it. They see what's going on in their worshiping, but they really don't worship. It makes me think of in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and he says, look, one day you will worship in spirit and in truth. And I feel like, I feel like they're kind of maybe missing part of the truth part because, man, they're excited. They're worshiping, but they're, they're kind of missing it. Why? Because Jesus is a different kind of king than what they're expecting. And is it possible that we also, at times, can have an incorrect view of who Jesus is and what he's come to do? See, Jesus' expectations and the people's, or the people's expectations and Jesus' intentions didn't align, and they killed him for it. Makes me think, okay, what are our expectations of who Jesus is and what he's come to do? Jesus is king, but he's a different kind of king. It's a different kind of king. What did Jesus come to do? I'll tell you, he did not come to reform politics. He didn't come to reform politics. It's what the Jewish people wanted. Man, I can't help but wonder if the Savior we are looking for is a political savior at times. Why? What gets us most worked up? I mean, oftentimes it's politics. I've heard so many people, i got to turn off politics, getting too worked up, too worked up about it, too worked up about it. I, I had to do the same thing. Politics can't ultimately save us. Why? Man. I don't usually listen to the, the news on my ride down on Sunday morning, but I did turn it on this morning. And I heard that 20 Chinese planes flew over Taiwan uh, as a display of power to kind of flex on the Taiwanese people to demonstrate that China still owns that area in the Pacific Island, or the Pacific Ocean, even though Taiwan says that they're dependent. There's brokenness in the world. Also heard that police and soldiers killed 114 Myanmar people who were protesting on the eve of a military celebration. And a five-year-old boy, two 13-year-old boys, a 14-year-old girl. Even inside our own borders, 10 people were killed in a boulder, boulder mass shooting at a supermarket this past week. Less than a week ago, 18 Asian Americans killed at three spas in Atlanta. I read of a husband and a wife who went out for a day at the spa together. And he went home a widow. Man, what we need, the problem that we need is sometimes not the problem that's most obvious in front of us. The problem is the transformation of the heart. Politics aren't going to say this, and Jesus knew it. He didn't come to meet their most obvious problem right there. The Romans, he came to, to meet a deeper need. We have a need. We've been separated by sin from the God of the universe, and Jesus came humbly to give his life so that we can be restored and reconciled in our relationship to God. And that's incredible. But politics won't, won't 
be the answer. Question came to mind this morning as I was driving. Uh, what is it that the world needs? What does the world need? What this world needs is, think about this. How will we answer this question? Political reform, justice, peace, love, education, resources. We've seen justice. We've seen justice in the form of brutal and imperfect oppression. We've seen peace in the Pax Romana, right? The Romans had a time of Roman, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. How did that happen? Through beating and submission, beating into submission the, the other people. We, we've seen love. We've seen love that sacrifices truth. All these things, man, these things are good, but attached from G, or detached from Jesus, they fall short, right? What this world needs is Jesus. We need these other things, but we need the biblical definition of what these things are. We need Jesus's love. We need Jesus's peace. It's, it's that that transforms the world. Not some top down. Jesus came lowly and riding on a donkey. We have to get that Jesus didn't come to reform the politics. The politics can't save us. This, this quote from uh, Stanley Hauerwas is, is great. He says, we would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world. That the boundaries of God's kingdom transcends those of Caesar's or the government or political party or political platform, policy, politician, etc. That the main task of the church is the formation of people who clearly see the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. That's what transformed the world in the first through third and century. The people, the Christians who understood this, that they didn't try to wed with the politics of the time. They subverted the Roman kingdom. How? Love, kindness, caring for the sick and the poor. I heard a Roman historian, I don't have the, the quote with me, a Roman historian who was lamenting about these Christians who are gaining prominence. He said, man, who are these guys? They're burying the pagan dead. They're taking care of the pagan sick. They're taking care of the pagan poor and the widows. These guys are promiscuous with everything but their beds. I think that's awesome, right? You see what he's getting at there? I hope that's not, not confusing. That These guys are they're going beyond any sort of uh, cultural boundary or anything in order to, to love people well. And that ultimately flipped the Roman Empire on its head. The second thing, so Jesus didn't come to reform politics. Secondly, Jesus is a humble savior. He's a humble savior. He didn't, came, he didn't come to gain power, not in human terms anyway. How often do we grasp for power, right? Grasping for power doesn't align with the, the culture of the kingdom of God. How do we grasp for power? When we put others down to put ourselves up. When we gossip to make ourselves look or feel better. We just have to win the fight. It's because we want power over the other person. When we are asserting our dominance or flexing our intelligence, when we tell small lies to protect our image or our ego, when we exaggerate on social media to make people think about us a certain way, 
when we manipulate other people or relationships, we want our name to be raised, our interests to be fulfilled, when we put ourselves before others, when we refuse to repent because it will make us look bad, when we refuse to confess because it makes us look bad or weak, and these, these do not reflect the character of Jesus or his kingdom. Philippians chapter 2 has the most, in, in my thought, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful images of Christ's humility. And, and Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, get this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus comes in humility. Look at his, look at his birth, right? This isn't part of Easter, but how did he come? He was born in somebody's barn, right? Among donkeys again. I want to read Philippians 2 in, in, in the New um, Living Translation. Once again, he says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death. Jesus is king, not only for the Jews, but for the whole world. He reigns not through violent oppression and through grasping power, but through self-sacrifice and humility. Jesus overcame our deepest problems, sin, not our most obvious, not our most obvious problem, which in that time was, was Rome. And this is great. We, we cling to the promise of Revelation 21.9 where it says, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Sin and brokenness and pain and suffering and sorrow are product of sin. God doesn't cause them. He's going to do away with them. And if not in this world, then in the world to come. Jesus is not only our king, but he's our example. And so the main point of all this is that we make the kingdom of God known and felt as we follow the humble example of Jesus. He doesn't live as a president or a king. He lives in the hearts and the lives of his people, and his kingdom is spread as he lives in and through his people. That's what spreads the message. That's what spreads the message. As I think about the people in, in Luke 19, I think, man, they're ignorant worshipers. 
They're ignorant worshipers. They praise Jesus and they kill him four days later because he didn't promote their political cause. He didn't grab power the way they wanted him to. But thankfully, we have, we have the scripture, right, that can help us see who Jesus is, what his kingdom is like, and how we can follow in it, and what a joy it is. And so, you know, as we go on our day and our week and our month, let's go to scripture to see the character of Jesus and his kingdom and ask him for help in living it out. It is a joyful, joyful endeavor. It takes a whole lifetime as we shape our lives around knowing him and becoming like him. So how do we, how do we participate in the kingdom of God? I'll conclude with this is first, um, submit to his lordship. Um, and if this is something we've done, like I, like I said earlier, I know for me, it takes resubmission, reorientation. Not that, I'm, not, not that I've lost my salvation. I need to come back to him and ask for salvation again. But it takes time to, to grow into practicing the practices of the kingdom culture as exemplified by Christ. Doesn't it? It takes time to learn the humility. It takes reminders. And I need to remember daily, Lord, help me today. Help me today be more like Christ. Help me be humble. Help me be a servant. Help me love others well, treat others well, not looking for my own interests, but also to the interests of others. Help me be like Christ. And so either submit or, or resubmit to his lordship. Second, we need to orient our lives around knowing Jesus and becoming like him. We need to go to scripture, reflect on what it says. I remember at the beginning of this year, we, we did a, a sermon series on scripture and scripture intake. No, the point of that was scripture is such a great thing, not only to teach us the truths of God and his kingdom, but also to look at our own hearts and our own lives and to can, compare and see how we can uh, practice those things. And when we fall short of living it out, go to Christ in repentance and confess sins to others. Receive his grace and extend his grace towards others. Let's walk in humility. I love, I love this. Verses 41 through 44. The people mess up. And what is Jesus' response? It's not harsh. It's compassionate. And the, and the justice comes. We see that Jesus says because they didn't get it, there was justice that occurred, and that occurred in the form of, in 70 AD, the Romans coming and uh, breaking the, the city of Jerusalem and destroying the temple. But he's weeping because of it. He's weeping because of it. He doesn't want it to happen. He treats us compassionately. His heart is broken. He wants us to come back to him. This isn't the first time Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. In Luke 13, and same thing in Matthew 23, both parallel passages, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. This is the response Jesus wants to have. He wants to invite us into receiving his grace and into receiving his, his love and kindness.